Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, the producer of the show. We're really happy that you joined us today. We've got a great one for you, Jelani Memory. He is a black father with a blended family, and racism was an inevitable topic of conversation in the home. So he wrote a book for his children to help with the challenges and the conversations they were having. Kids loved it, shared it with some of his friends. They shared it with their kids. They loved it, ended up taking it to market, and it has blown up. It's called A Kid's Book About Racism. A Kid's Book About Racism. He ended up starting a publishing company, and he's written now several books that are you know challenging topics of conversation for families uh, with children. So done really, really well. Can't keep it uh, in stock. A kid's book about racism. He also originally founded Circle Media, which is now co-owned by Disney. It's a little device that uh, is a filter for your Wi-Fi. We had that in our home for a while. Really, really cool. You can check that out too. He is an Enneagram One. Or is he? The further we got into this conversation, we really leaned into three. So Enneagram One or Three? We'll see. Hey, if you want to check out some other episodes, uh, the more recent one related to Enneagram One is Lee and Laura Camp. I believe it's titled Lee and Laura Camp on Healing with the Enneagram. And Lee is a one and Laura is an eight. So it's really helpful to uh, get a bird's eye view for what a one might uh, face in a relationship. Or if you are in a relationship to one and want to know what a one is thinking, be sure to check that one out. Lee and Laura Camp on Healing with the Enneagram. Hey, without any further ado, let's get to the man of the hour, your host, Ian Cron. Jelani Memory, welcome to Typology. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have you. And before we get started, as a four on the Enneagram, I want to express my deepest sorrow that my background is not nearly as interesting as yours is. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, I I feel bad for your background slightly, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but you don't got to look at your background. You look at my background um, and, and I can see my background in my own, you know, view screen. So, well, you, yeah, well, you have gamed up on me, man. Uh, and even <laughs> Anthony's background looks better. This is my show, man. <laughs> this is my show. The only good thing on is I, I have a new shirt on that has a heart on it. Do you see that? Oh, yeah. I love that. So I'm playing my role. I'm playing my role. Well, hey, man, tell us about yourself. And uh, you are an Enneagram One, the improver. I no longer call you all the perfectionists yeah, uh, because I think an improver is uh, actually a better description of who you actually are. And uh, I just want to know about you and how you, you learned about the Enneagram and how you determined you were a one. Yeah. So gosh, where do I start? Um, born in Portland, Oregon, um, you know, black dad, white mom, uh, dad leaves when I'm four mom raises us by herself. Um, youngest of four kids. And, uh, I spent my entire life, uh, either wanting to be an artist or, um, go play in the NBA. <laughs> um, that was my entire childhood. And I sort of danced between, you can imagine the different friend groups that um, those entailed. And 
uh, you know, I didn't realize this until I became an adult. I had a tumultuous childhood, hmm. um, you know, uh, I had two drug addicted parents, um, you know, experienced abuse as a kid, um, uh, you know, uh, never had, I think, any real fundamental relationships uh, in terms of friendships until I became maybe a junior or senior in high school. Um, but yet was the most popular kid in school, you know, um, had all the friends, played three varsity sports um, and uh, yeah. Again, didn't realize till later, I was um, experiencing extreme depression ever since I was in early adolescence. Um, so you can imagine just the cocktail that that created for me as as a kid. And uh, you know, I, I feel quite fortunate. I'm going to get to the Enneagram part, by the way. That's I, great. I no, I this is fantastic. On I want. Awesome. No, no, I, I just really want people to have a sense of the family of origin. Sure. That, that often we see different types. You know, have different. Obviously, everyone has a different story, but there are sure. oftentimes features of that of upbringing that different types yeah. have, right? So yeah. keep going, keep going. Got it. So my my senior year, having never gone to church, having never heard the gospel, having never interacted with religion at all, and actually being quite outspoken in terms of you know being. Uh, just a a non-believer, if you will, uh, and being able to sort of crush arguments about, you know, this non-existent God who doesn't exist and, you know, all the things, um, I become a Christian. Um, and, and it revolutionizes my life in every way possible, inside, mm. outside. I am just a completely different person. And I think for the first time in my life, I start to feel the feelings of my childhood, of my adolescence and of my sort of emerging adulthood, I start to really actually, I think, grieve all of mm -hmm. my experiences and start to reflect on them. Um, go to college, uh, Bible college, study theology, Bible and Koine Greek with a little bit of speech common there. Um, stop playing sports for the first time in my life and have this massive vacuum of time because before I was playing three sports year round, you know, in infinitum. Uh, and I, I find myself with this desire in college, to just start things to just create things out of thin air. I didn't have the word for it then, but I think that was entrepreneurship, mm. this idea, sort of this lack of, uh, having no fear of failure, I suppose. So, um, you know, I spend four years, some of the best years of my life growing up, I think, and becoming a whole person during my college years and getting ready to get launched out into the world. And, you know, I think I started to un understand myself more than, than I ever really had, that I was this blend of um, entrepreneurship, of creativity, of, you know, you use that word improver, that I wanted to go make the world a better place genuinely. Right. Um, and and then I had the ability to, to lead other people in doing that, that I could somehow sort of coax other people into following me, into helping me do that. Um, you know, that was most exemplified during my college years and being student body president at the college. So first black student body president at my college, got to do it two years in a row. First year I failed horribly. And the second year I ran on the platform going, I think I understand this job now. So you should elect me again. Um, and they did. Um, I, I, I mean, I could keep going. Do you want me to keep going into my story? Um, <laughs> you, you can. I'm a therapist. We can go all day long on your story, man, and I, I'll be happy. But tell me about how you learned the Enneagram. So I think somebody, you know, gone, oh, oh, what type are you? You know, they brought it up. Oh, you don't know what the Enneagram is? And I was like, no, I don't. And so they're like, oh, you should take this test. And 
And me, I was like, I don't need to take a test to see who I am. Like, no, thanks. I'm not going to do that. So I ended up reading the types and based on reading what the types were, I was like, oh, that's easy. I'm a type one. Like, I don't even need to take the test. I'm a type one. Of course, I eventually took the test and it was like, yeah, you're a type one. Hmm. Um, and and it's been this fascinating journey as I've you know had it for, I'd say, probably the last decade in terms of uh, being able to reference it for myself, um, but also to learn more about other people and what their types are and what drives them, motivates them, what their fears are. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how I got sort of in touch with it. Wow. And how, how has it, if it has sort of affected your, your life and relationships? Uh, you mean my type or knowing about it? Knowing about it. Mm. <laughs> it allows me, I think, to, to pause every once in a while. So this will find itself when I'm frustrated with an employee or when I'm having a fight with my wife or when, when I'm elated and I'm super pumped about something that nobody else is pumped about. Like they're like, why are you so happy about that? Jelani? Can you give me an example of that? Uh, something I'm really happy about. Yeah. That, that you, you get pumped about that. Everyone else is like, huh? Hmm. Don't really get yeah, it. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example from yesterday and this is going to be so in the weeds that you guys are going to be like, huh? Huh. <laughs> um, so uh, HBO Max decided to release their entire slate of films next year. Um, uh, or sorry, Warner Brothers decided to release their entire slate of films via HBO Max and theaters at the same time. Um, right. This would be 10 tentpole films. This has never been done before, ever in the history of movie making and theaters and sort of big budget productions. Um, it will literally change filmmaking and the economics of the movie industry forever for mm. the rest of existence. I got really excited about that and really pumped. <laughs> and my wife was like, so does that mean we get to like watch it at home? What was it about it that pumped you up? Uh, uh, the, the idea of getting to in the moment, recognize history making itself. Mm. To not just see that after the fact, but to see it in the moment and one kind of, kind of know that I know that, um, but two, to, to know all the, the, the benefits that will come of that, Mm -hmm. um, what that'll likely do is actually seed more power to sort of media and tech companies and away from Hollywood Mm -hmm. and create the economics where actually artists and creators get paid more as they are getting paid with the Netflixes of the world. Um, and then sort of take this antiquated thing that we all should show up to this, um, you know, dark room with the big screen and loud music and watch a thing together. And that's the only way or the purest way to experience media. I think it is a great way. It is just not the only way. And theaters have been this crazy holdout with their hold over distributors. Um, so anyways, like if you can't tell, I love movies and I love sort of the, the filmmaking business, but for me, what got me really excited was sort of recognizing that this is going to be a, a, an effect that's just going to snowball with every other studio. Right. Okay. Well, that's good. I, as I have to say, as a, you got two floors here and, and uh, I, I'm not sure how I feel about it, but maybe because I have a crappy TV. <laughs> 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 so I may need to go get, you know, some 400 inch 
television for my 100 inch room um that will might might change it all for me so you 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 said before we started that you it was so clear to you that you were one did have you looked at all nine types i believe so i I think at one time i have and they all seemed so absurd to me um that i could only be a one (laughs) (laughs) maybe we'll find out right so let's just we, you know, a lot of our, our listeners are people that are, are new to the Enneagram. So let me just kind of give a type overview and sure. then you can, you can comment on it as a, as a, as a one. So as I mentioned, ones are, are called the, uh, the improvers, the, the unconscious motivating motivation that is driving the way that ones act, think, and feel is a need and oftentimes a compulsive need to perfect themselves, others, and the world around them. So uh, their passion is anger. And the way that anger manifests itself is more as resentment, kind of a simmering resentment than it is straight up anger, right? You get more straight up anger from an Enneagram 8, the challenger. Hmm. With, with a one, it's kind of a simmering resentment just below the skin. And the, the origin of that resentment is the, well, two things. One is it's like a little bit of a, uh, a background message for the one as they look at the world is it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. And so that's kind of always operating yeah. in, in the operating system. It's mm-hmm. like, it shouldn't be this way. And so when you walk into a room, your focus of attention, which is a term we use with the Enneagram, everybody has a different focus of attention. Uh, when I walk into a room, the things I notice are very different than what you notice. And what you notice is very different than what a seven notices. You know, their, their attention, we, our attention nails to different things. Okay, mm-hmm. fastens itself. So when a one walks into a room, what you see are the mistakes. You see, mm. you see what's disordered, what's not working. Like I'm looking at your bookshelf right now. If I had a bookshelf mm-hmm. like that, I'd have so much anxiety because it's so <laughs> ordered. Look at it. It's so <laughs> ordered. Like even the action guys back there are probably, yeah. have, you have probably, you probably cannot, if you come into the room, you might notice that one of your six kids, we'll get to that, um, uh, have come in and maybe moved one or two. And your first impulse will be to go fix it. Yeah. I'll even go further than that. I'll go fix the thing that I did in the past. And I was like, ah, oh, that's not right. I'll, I'll move it over here. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll go and fix your kid for fixing your action figures. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I think that is, I think that is fundamentally true for me as a one mm-hmm. um, with a caveat. I, I feel like I've hacked this idea of finding what is out of order to delighting what is in order um, and being able to go, Oh, that's good. Oh, that's right. Oh, that, like, like to start to feel sort of that excitement around that. Um, it, it, it's, it's what makes me, if I can toot my own horn a little bit, it's what makes me, I think a really good boss is I typically hire people to do something they've never done before because I see in them an ordered bit a skill, a talent, an ability to go do a specific thing that they themselves are going, really? You want to hire me to do that? And I'm like, oh yeah. Cause like, I, I just, it's that innate ability to see it while also being able to see like, I can't ever give this to you because you, <laughs> you're, you can't do that thing, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. That's a lot of integration for a one. I mean, that's, that's, that's unusual for a one to, to be able to do what you're describing, unless They've done a lot of personal work. One of the areas of growth for a one would be um, 
learning how to see the fundamental perfection beneath the surface of all mm, things. Yeah. Right? The fundamental yeah. goodness at the yeah. core of all things. Now, that's not to say there's not evil in the world. That's not to say that, sure. you know, there's, you know, but, but I will say this, that all of us tend to believe we know, and ones in particular, tend to believe they know what is right and wrong. Right. And mm-hmm. so, <laughs> and there's no, and, yeah, right. Well, there's no, and there's no, it's pretty black and white, right? It's not, it, it doesn't have the nuance that, that other types might have as they see the world. Right. So gray is a hard color oftentimes, although you wouldn't mm. know it from my background today, Yeah, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> you know, actually this is a perfect background for me because I'm a four on the Enneagram and I believe in gray. Um, mm. So, but, but for fours, I mean, for ones that, that, that confidence about knowing they know what, what, what right and wrong is, I'm always telling them, interrogate it. Hmm. Like, like interrogate your assumption that there is a right and wrong, and you actually know what the right is and the wrong is, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? As, but, I, think about, as I think about exploring that for myself, I can, I can find moments and times where, where I am that black and white, where this is good and this is bad, and I'm, I'm not even going to ask questions mm. about what's good or bad. I just know it. And I'm here to disseminate that information to those people right. around me, also to live it out. So I think that is very true. The The caveat that I'll give to that, and and, and you use the word integration. And so I'll, I'll piggyback on that. My integrated self says sort of um, what is good can be gray. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, and know that it's squishy and uh, indeterminable, and and so as opposed to defining good as a as a fixed point, as actually defining good is is not knowing. Good is going. I don't know, and that's actually the right thing to say, which is mm. sort of this fixed point with lots of space in it. And I think that's allowed me because I, I described my childhood very quickly um, and very tumultuously. And clearly I've done a lot of personal work around that to just be as free with that information as, as I am. Um, and fundamentally there is I, like, I have to look at that and go, that made me who I am. Um, and, and there was a lot of bad there, but also like, there's a lot of beauty there. Mm-hmm. And and also it left me pretty broken in a lot of ways, but part of my brokenness is who I am. So I, I can't fundamentally believe that I am as myself a wrong thing that needs to be completely remade just to like me or feel that I am good. Um, and so it's it's created this ability to go, things can be broken and good. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Oh, and, yeah. And, and to, again, to let it be squishy. And I... I can't say it was always this way with me, but as a part of my personal development, getting there. Now, here's the thing is I can do that with myself. I'm not always as gracious with other people in that same way, Mm. but I'm getting better and better at that. And it's different contexts and with different things. Um, You know, like sometimes I would get stuck in a fight with my wife where I just go like, but you're wrong. Like you're just wrong about this. (laughs) And I can't, not let you not know that you're wrong about it. And other times I get to a point where I go, oh my gosh, I she is asking of me the same thing that not only I'm asking her, but I I, I ask and beg of myself to be, which is mm-hmm. this sort of like understanding, empathetic, let it go, find the higher order thing um, and and connect and and get relationship, right? Not be right 
Um, you know, the thing I've been told most throughout my life is you always think you're right. And my internal retort to that is, yeah, no duh. <laughs> Which is such a one thing. Like I know that it's such a one thing. And 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 I'm like, I'm monologuing, so I apologize. I'll finish with this. Part of my my life as an entrepreneur, starting businesses, right? Fixing problems, fixing the world, if you will, is how do I put this? Is to is to use that thing in me, that fixingness, that sort of feeling right as a superpower. Mm-hmm. And you know that it is limited. And that right alongside it is a kryptonite, which is believing I am right about things that I have no business being right about. Mm. Uh, and so part of that is meaning I got to stay in my zone, stay in my, and then like company wise means I got to not do things that I'm bad at. Cause I will assume that I'm right at them and I will do them and I will totally blow them up and be bad at them. So I just give those to other people. And I don't even, I don't even get close to them because I'll yes. start inserting my opinion and I just let them be right at it. And I assume that I'm right in letting them be right about the thing that they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I think, well, I'm hearing a lot of four and seven in you, and and which makes sense because those lines are attached to the one. So when mm. a one is healthy, you go to the high side of seven. You know, you start to take on the characteristics and traits of a healthy seven. And sevens, in my mind, make the best entrepreneurs on the Enneagram. Like they have an openness to experience. That's from the like the big five personality uh, test, which is a very accurate measure of personality. Um, you have an openness to experience. You're able to find overlaying patterns and things that other people don't see. You're 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 able to spot opportunities, and and yet it, there, there's kind of a playfulness, you know, to the discovery. Mm. Um, and then uh, when you're under stress, you know you you typically go to the low side of four, right? Um, where it's sort of depressed, melancholy, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in, in the worst sense of the word, um, resigned, a little needy and clingy to, to other people. Um, and, and so that's where ones will typically go when they're not doing great, yeah. right? So imagine, imagine that, but growing up in a home where there is no adults to be needy and clingy to, Mm. Um, you know, then I just cave in internally. Right. Right. And you take on that, that will contribute to the formation of a one personality, right? Because you're, you're growing up in chaos and you're like, well, who's in charge here? Nobody. So I have to order this disordered world. I, I might, lots of ones will say I had to take on the role of the parent. And so what, what, if we were going to use Freudian terms, we'd say that the, the most, uh, one of the things that really characterizes a one is this inflated superego, mm. right? The, the superego that's, that's always telling you, okay, uh, put a tamp down on this emotion. It's not right, right? It's, yep. it's, that, it's the voice of the sort of the arbiter of truth, the arbiter of what's moral, uh, what's right, what's good. And it will punish you when things are bad. Like if you are bad, like that's a nightmare to a one, right? That, that there's some, that they're doing something bad or they are something bad, mm. um, which is a common theme. Almost it's for all ones, right? This fear of not being good. You know, it's funny. Cause as I think about how my faith intersects with that, as well as my, um, my role as uh, an expert in a field, if you will, 
Um, uh, you know, my, my faith is remarkably important to me, you know, which you can wrap around the idea of being good, of being moral, of being right. Um, and being, um, knowledgeable, an expert in my field to be best in class, um, to not just be third or second, but to be number one. Yes. Um, and whatever I do, even if it's the background of my Zoom call, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh yeah, oh I get it. I get um, it. Uh, it, like I, there's such an inherent danger there, and I think the way that I've, I've learned to cope with all of that um, is, is to go easy on myself. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Interesting. Um, you know, um, to go easy on myself, and I think to go easy on others, um, because I realize like. I will drive myself super hard and I, that's made me successful in a lot of areas. Um, but at what cost often? And, and the reality is I'll do that to other people. And I'm like, what am I, what am I doing that for them for that? They never asked me to do that thing for them. Hmm. Um, but it, but it is attention. And I think going to the melancholy when I'm doing bad. Yep. Totally true. And then I think going to impatience and anger is another thing. And I'm actually curious to like sort of plug at that a little bit because anger's, impatience is a new thing for me. It's a new pandemic thing that Mm. I had never experienced before. I'm a very patient person, or at least I assumed until I realized that I had ordered my life in such a way where I could be patient. But now being at home 24 seven, working at home, running a business at home, having six kids at home who are doing school at home. My wife runs a nonprofit at home. I find myself with so little patience and, and like, like almost like, you know, my, my wick is like that, you know, long. And if folks can't see my fingers, I'm making a very short gesture. Um, and it surprised me. And, and the first place I go after I get impatient is anger. Um, and, and it's starting to echo pictures of my dad or my brother or my mom. Um, and, and I think also uncovering that thing that you talked about, which is like sort of that anger sitting just beneath the surface is realizing maybe I've just been hiding this thing the mm. whole time. Maybe it's been there. It's just never had the ability to come out because I've been so practiced. I've been so patient. I've been able to conceal it. So, you know, if I can get a little bit of free therapy here, um, <laughs> well, I'd, yeah. love to, I'd, I'd love to understand that a little bit, actually. Yeah, I'd like to understand it too. Um, historically in your life, have people ever told you that um, – they sense that you're judgmental and critical, even when you're not saying anything. 100%. Really? Okay. Yeah. I've had people tell me that I'm looking at them in a judgmental way. Yes. Yes. Even when you're trying not to. Yeah. Even, even when I'm intentionally right. doing the opposite, right? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, have people said that they feel that you, you at times radiate shame? The, the feeling that, that everybody is not enough. Mm, the feeling that everybody is not enough. Compared to your yardstick. Mm. Yeah, I can, find, I can find echoes of that. I, I don't think I ever would have attached the, the word shame to it, but, mm-hmm. but that sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. So I have a, a relative who is a one uh, on the Enneagram and not at all self-aware. Mm. And, and I remember before I knew the Enneagram as a younger man, um, I always felt like the message I was getting from them without their having to even say it was, you're not enough. Mm. You do not measure up to my high internal standards. 
um, mm. that everything you do will fall short mm. of what I think is good and right and excellent. Now you're, you're echoing words that my wife has told me. Mm. Now let's talk about you and your wife for a second. <laughs> your wife, Randy, right? Yeah. You're a one. Is she a nine? She is absolutely a nine. <laughs> okay. This is like, <laughs> I am like becoming a psychic. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to say that every time I meet a one, I ask them, is your partner or spouse a nine? And they go, they get these big eyes. And they go, how did you know that? <laughs> and I say, because it is the most frequent combination I meet huh. on the Enneagram are nines and ones. Yeah. I have some theories about it. And what's, I'll tell you something that's interesting. Nines and ones make up the bulk of my audience. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, what? obviously we have all types, but, but we have a disproportionate number of ones and nines. Huh. What, 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 what makes that up? Well, like why? Well, the ones are easy because they, they uh, are addicted to self-improvement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so lots they, of podcasts, lots of, <laughs> lots oh, of learning. Podcasts, self-help books, yeah. um, how to be more productive. I mean, this is why sometimes I think threes and ones get a little overlay. Um, and so, uh, so ones being people who really care about becoming better at who they are, you know, what they do, right? They want to improve, 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 right? Yeah. That makes sense. They listen to podcasts. They want to learn about themselves uh, so they can continually work on, on who they are. I think with nines, I think nines are, are a little puzzled by who they are mm. um, and how they, how they operate in the world. So I think that there's also, there's an inherent curiosity that nines have about the way the world is. Mm. And, and so I think that's one explanation. Now I think <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but for two, not very self-aware types, Right. Mm. If you, I mean, if you're not, I mean, if you're not a self-aware nine or not a self-aware one, sure. right? I think one sometimes marry nines because they're a great project to perfect that person. Hmm. You're you're very different. Like 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 nines can tolerate disorder. In fact, they can be very disordered. They can be mm. kind of disorganized. Um, they can uh, let things go that a one would never let go. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so it's almost like the one is like going, oh, I think that nine needs some help getting their life together, ordered, you know, and the nine looks to the one like, yeah, please. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please do that for me. That's fascinating. You know, I, it, the thing you just described is actually the exact opposite with my wife. And okay, I. come on, bring it. I want to hear about it. So my wife is remarkably organized, um, punctual, um, you know, uh, she's the one that like, did you do the thing on the day at the time that you needed to do so that this other thing can get done at this time? And I'm like, oh yeah, I said that I was going to do that. I don't remember. Interesting. Um, and, and I actually think that this is probably more sort of, um, you know, family of origin, um, uh, we, you know, I was never asked to do my chores as a kid. I was never asked to do my homework as a kid. We never were on time to anything as a kid. And so I've had to manufacture those things in adulthood, um, uh, literally invent them out of thin air. My wife, all those things, all those structures were in place, you know, and, and she also like, you know, she became a single mom of four kids. And so you have to be very ordered if you're working and sending those kids to school and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so I, I think maybe that's a bit of where that comes from. That's not to say I don't have a ton of order in a bunch of other places and I'm not thinking sort of at a macro level and a micro level about those things and that she doesn't look to me for those things. But, um, you know, if you want to point to one more organized person in this marriage, uh, it's her, it's not me. It's fascinating because there's a lot of reasons why that could be the case, but it's not, it's not typical right? So when a nine is healthy, they'll go to the high side of three and be doing the kinds of things that you're talking about now, mm. right? And mm-hmm. um, when they're not doing great, they go to the low side of six. I won't bother. I mean, no, I'm sorry. Uh, when the nine is doing great, they go to the, yes, the high side of three, the low side of six. Um, so she may be operating at the high side of three, or she could be a nine with a super strong one wing. Mm. You could be a one with a super strong nine wing. Hmm. Right. So there's a lot of discernment. This is the whole thing about the Enneagram is like, it's not cut and dry. You know, it's not like, okay, spits out a type. You are this It's in a box. It's so much more fluid and it requires discernment. Uh, And it can, this is why it can take a long time to to figure out type. I mean, as you've been speaking, I've been hearing other types Hmm. in you. It's not like, okay, this is a super clear one. It is. You are not a super clear one. Well, let me, let me, um, I, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm like in self parody mode right now as a one, I think, um, here's what I think I'm doing. And what I think you're noticing, I think is, is I'm borrowing. Um, all I'm doing as a self-improvement method is borrowing from other types to go, that looks good. I think I'll take that one part and, and integrate that into me and, and use it because I believe that that fundamentally is good and right. Oh, Okay. All right. Um, but you're really describing a very important spiritual dynamic there. And this is something I talk about in my new book. Uh, and by the way, I, I need to get to Circle Media and I need to get to your publishing company, which we're going to do next because we've been talking uh, quite a bit about it. And I think it's cool. also indicative of some things that are one-ish. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, for me, what does health look like? What does what does what is if you think about spirituality, what's the point, right? If you ask a t- typical Christian, uh, let's say, um, well, what's the, what is the summit of your faith? Like, what, what does it look like? Right. And they actually don't have an answer. Hmm. They'll say like, well, I want to be more like Jesus. And I'm like, what does that mean? Hmm. What can you tell me? Is it just mimicking or aping this historical figure? I mean, what is it you're just, and how would you ever get there? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and you know, it's interesting to me, like, I don't hear any end game, any, well, what's the goal? Like, what's the point? Right. Mm-hmm. And I get very squishy, nebulous answers to that question. Right. So if I were using the Enneagram as a spiritual formation tool and you think about the diagram going around, right. The Enneagram diagram, mm-hmm. there's this gigantic field of white in the middle. Mm. Right. Very, very big field of white in the middle uh, or an empty field, I should say. Sure. And uh, what I tell them, what I tell people is when you can let go of your, the grip, this, this, paralytic grip that you have on your type. It's like, not paralytic, but arthritic. It's like, it's like talents. It's like you're holding on to it for dear life because it's helped you survive in the world. If you let go of it and begin to migrate into the middle, that's Mm -hmm. to me, that's, if you get to the middle of that diagram where you have access to all the gifts and energies of all the types 
and mm. begin in the moment to say, what does this moment require of me? Ah, well, it requires the energy of this three and maybe this five, or in this moment, I need to be more sixish. And maybe in this moment, you, do you see where I'm going? Yeah, so, absolutely. So when people ask me, what number is Jesus? I say, he doesn't have a number. <laughs> he, he lives. Yeah. If you think of the Enneagram as a diagram of the, the central characteristics of the nature of God, Jesus is right in the middle. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, I the love father that. and I are one. So it's like now he has access so that in every moment he knows what combination of gifts or to, to draw upon. And so if we can just let go of our over, our, our over, I don't want to say this. If we just get over being so loyal to our type, yeah, let go of it and get to that middle, we'll become more capacious, beautiful and, mm -hmm. and effective people in the world because we'll have access to everything good. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, you're describing. Oh, I, I love that. And I think that's a, a really beautiful way to put it. And I also think, um, you know, quite validating, I, I suppose, to just hear, like, in some sense, I'm on the right path yes. to, to, as a one, especially. I really like that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I keep finding as I grow as a person um, that my, my core desire actually ends up being just to get it, get out of the way of my, myself, you know, mm. um, and, yes. and, and be less sort of goal oriented. Uh, let me put it a different way. Uh, it's not that I reach the top of the mountain and put in all the hard work to do that, but I just remove sort of the scales from my eyes and realize like, I'm already standing here. I just never mm. opened up my eyes to notice it. Um, and, and wow. that, that pile of shame, guilt, you know, trauma, abuse. I mean, just right. Like scratching back all that stuff so that you can just see what is right in front of you better. Um, it's why, you know, I, I, I adopted the phrase, like, if I can't be happy where I'm at, I can't be happy anywhere mm. as, as a young person, because I realized like, if I'm, if I'm going to be on this endless chase of better, 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 you know, new car, new friends, new job, new whatever, right? Like um, it inherently is going to leave me deeply unhappy because um, I should be able to be content with where I'm at, which I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit far afield here from the original point, but yeah, that's a, I, I think it's a really fascinating way that you put it. You sound like a Buddhist Christian to me, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> which is not a bad thing to be a Buddhist enriched Christian. You know, in other words that you, yeah. You take the best of, a, of maybe what an, another tradition has to offer and let it uh, be just part of the mix, you know. Um, but that, and the reason I say that is that ability to just accept things as they are, or or Mrs. Um, accept isn't the right word, to um, allow things as they are to be as they are. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't mean you won't, don't want to improve things or make things better. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that, but this is the way it is right now. Yeah. This is how it is, is a, uh, is maybe more of what I'm talking about. Now tell me about circle media and tell me about your, your publishing company, both of which you started. Right. Yeah. And, and I just want to, cause I did a little research here. So, mm. you know, I want to, <laughs> I want to hear about them. Give us a little brief overview. Yeah. So, um, I finish college. I become a professional photographer of all things. I spend a decade doing that. And out of, out of the blue, I start a tech company with a, a good friend of mine. 
And, and the core idea there was he had bought iPod touches for his kids um, who were, you know, something like eight, nine, and 10 at that time. They just came out and he thought he was the coolest dad in the world. And then he realized that he had put the internet in their pocket and they weren't ready for that, hmm. that he had sort of disambiguated the family computer and individualized it for each of them. So this is, you know, like, this is a pretty sort of heady concept as a parent to go, oh my God, what have I done? Uh, and he's like, there's gotta be a way to solve this. And he's like, there's no software that I can put on this. And he's like, even then my kid might delete it. So he's like, come start a company with me and we're going to solve this problem. And I was like, oh, that's a really great problem to solve. Um, like how do we allow parents to parent in the digital age? And I had my, my kid was three at the time. And so we started a company and, um, didn't know what we didn't know. And that was the, the best thing possible. Um, it took three years to get the launch, um, raised money, ran out of money, raised money, ran out of money, lost team members, you know, had people join, quit, you know, blah, blah, blah. Couldn't pay anybody, um, and get to market in 2015 with a product called circle with Disney in partnership with the Walt Disney company, which is its whole own really cool story of how that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the core idea was, is this little white box that you connect to your network, whether wirelessly or via ethernet, and it would see every device on your network and give you as the parent or the caregiver, the grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, you name it, uh, sort of master of your dominion, uh, a pause button for the internet. You could set time limits for specific platforms like Netflix or YouTube or, you know, uh, you name it. Um, and set a bedtime so that when your kid, you know, reached 7.30 or 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, their internet just like shut off, but the rest of the devices didn't shut off. And then you could also track what they saw and what they interacted with, how long they spent on different platforms. And then uh, last but not least, filter out content, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm not sure a lot of eight-year-olds need to be looking at porn. So, you know, you could sort of toggle those switches on and off um, and have it be by person in the home and make it as user-friendly as one app on one of the parents' phones to be able to manage all those devices without ever having to touch any of those devices. Um, spent a, a number of years growing that up and I learned so much. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at heart a creative person, not a business person, I would say. Uh, and yet I start companies for a living, I'd say. Um, and it became this cool avenue to have a bigger playground to work out my creativity, um, company building, if you will, because there was more spaces to go solve problems, right? On finance, there was spaces. On, you know, product, there was spaces, marketing, the website, you name it. Um, had a blast doing that. It was, it was also really deeply hard, um, because it was the first time that I was working with people. Um, and as, as a one, yeah, they'll, they'll mess everything up. Man. <laughs> yeah. Good night. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I spent a decade as a freelance photographer working by myself for myself. Um, and working with people was like, why aren't they doing what I would do? Like, what's wrong with them? Uh, and I remember getting really, I didn't know how to cope with it, quite honestly. And, and it taught me a lot, I think, about leadership. It taught me a lot about people. It taught me a lot about myself and and what it, what it means to not just get things done, but gain consensus to sort of, you know, um, build, build ideas, build a company, you know, build um, meaning and purpose in the work that we do. Um, so at the height of that, um, back in 2018, um, I was burned out. Uh, I, uh, you know, quite honestly, I, I was getting sidelined in, 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 in the company in general, because 
I'm first and foremost, right, an improver um, and a risk taker. Like there is no risk too big to take mm. to do something that's worthwhile to do. And so I was always trying to swing the bat as hard as we could. And everybody was like going, all we're doing is bunting today. And and that's what the company became about. And look, that's that's neither here nor there in terms of whether that was right or wrong. It just wasn't the thing that I was into. So that's when I wrote my little book. Uh, and it just happened that that coincided. I was burned out. I wanted a personal project outside of work. So I wrote a book for my kids titled A Kid's Book About Racism. Now, somewhere in there, right, uh, years previous, I had gotten remarried. I had brought on four stepkids. I had my own biological kid and one kid on the way. And, uh, you know, we were talking about race, culture, color, uh, you know, because when you show up as a, as a, as a black dad, you know, going to pick up your white kids, their friends start to go, who's that guy? Um, and, and that conversation has to be pretty open inside the home. And so I, I made the book mostly as just a cool dad thing to do for my kids as a way to keep that conversation going, not having any other big ambition with it other than this will be kind of cool and fun and, and a distraction from work. And, you know, wrote it in a week, designed it in a week, printed one copy, got it in October of 2018, showed it to my kids. And they were like, this is cool, dad. I said, great mission accomplished. (laughs) But I showed it to other parents and they were like floored. Um, And I started to have a series of the same conversation over and over and over again. First it was, oh my God, can I read it? And then they would proceed to read it, you know, cover to cover right in front of me, 64 page children's book. And then they would ask, can I have a copy? Of which I'd say, no, because it's my only copy. <laughs> I wasn't right, planning on yeah. printing more. <laughs> and, then, and then they would open up a part of their lives next that often had nothing to do with racism, but it was another difficult, challenging, vulnerable space, whether that was their mental health, whether that was an experience of a death in the family, some conversation that they realized that they don't have very often that they should be having more. And now they were having it with me and I was going, oh my God, what has my little kid's book done? And it planted this seed to go, you know what? I think there's a there there, not just from a product perspective or from a, a money-making perspective, but more so from a like, this needs to exist in the world. And it's a shame that it doesn't. And I might be the one person who's qualified to do that. And, and I say that with a ton of confidence, knowing that there's not a lot of uh, you know black CEOs of publishing companies. Um, you know, there's not a lot who are coming from the tech industry, from the entrepreneurship industry coming to make books. And for me, you know, having not grown up with a dad, having grown up with a pretty sort of absent mother emotionally, I made the decision with my own kids to have every conversation too early instead of too late. Mm-hmm. Um, very consciously, you know, sort of inventing my own kind of fatherhood since I didn't have a dad around to do that. Um, and these books just became an outpouring of that. And I realized they don't exist because nobody's been in a position to make them. Right. I just happened to be in that position to do that. So you've got a bunch of other titles. You've got a kid's book about feminism. I love that. Uh, you've got one, a kid's book about depression. What, what, what other one? And anxiety. You have another one, a yeah. kid's book about anxiety. Well, I know you've got a ton of these titles. Just give me four or five other other uh, empathy, titles. change, anxiety, God, um, death, uh, COVID nineteen, um, systemic racism, white privilege, um, all 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 of parents' favorite conversations to have with their kids. Right. Right. 
Yes, right. <laughs> Do you have one about a kid's book about addiction? Yeah, we, uh, yes. Uh, it's not shipping yet, but it, uh, we've, we've made it and it's on pre-order. That's fantastic. Boy, I thought I was going to add something to the pile, Anthony. <laughs> what? Nothing happened there. <laughs> I'll, I'll, maybe I'll come up with one. And, and no, please do. Please do. <laughs> you could have read a kid's book about the Enneagram. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. There's a self-interested promotion on my part. Yeah. Right. All right. Um, so can I just say that you're not a clear one to me yet? All right. It's not saying you're not a one. I'm not saying you're not a one. <laughs> the one is is a self. You know, the only test or measure of of, of a type is self validation. You, mm. You're not the only one who knows. Let me just let me ask you one question. Do you have sure. a punishing, harsh inner critic? <laughs> let me say this. It it very likely is that. I just don't call it that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I might, I might use the word motivation. I might use the word, um, uh, I don't know, discernment. Um, I might use the word, uh, you know, um, humility. Um, <laughs> whether those things are actually true or not, that that mm-hmm. that inner voice is mm-hmm. those things. Um, Let me tell you a story, okay? And I'll, I'll I'll let you decide whether this is a internal punishing critic or yeah, just harsh. Maybe maybe that's a, you know you know it it's always saying to you you could have done this better. Why didn't you do that better? You know you you should be better at that. You ought to be better. You must do this different next time. It's it, and it's kind of got a little bit of a finger wag to it. Hmm. See when when you say that, I'm I'm thinking of my last three months of a lot of my interactions with my kids. Like a lot of finger wagging, a lot of you can do that better, a lot of that's not right, a lot of please eat over your plate, a lot of, you know, please don't say that to your sister. No, really, please don't say that to your sister. Um, and so I have to imagine that has to translate internally. Um, I, I, I often think of that internal drive and motivation is to make something good or great, to make something beautiful and cool. And at every step of the way, every iteration, I love that thing, but also want to make it better. Like it's, it's both of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I, okay, I so just put- want to take out the word harsh and I, I just want to put okay. in like the the right critic, like a okay. critic. <laughs> you know well, I mean? now, now, some ones, by the way, would say that that inner critic is their friend and mm. others would say it's not. Mm. Okay. Some would say, you know, this thing has really helped me, not, not hurt me. Um, but after a lot of self-examination, ones may often come back and go, oh yeah, now I know what you're saying when, you, when, it's, when it's harsh. You know, I, okay, now I, now I understand it. That said, every type, every person of a type manifest that the, the features and the hallmark traits of that type in different ways, right? Mm. It, there's no cookie cutter. It's not a stereotype. Sure. It's a type. That said, there are hallmark features of the one that are squishy on you. Mm. You know what I'm saying? That, sure. that aren't exactly that. That's one of the reasons I asked you at the beginning of the interview, how well do you know all the other types? Sure. Um, did you read all nine types and really, you know, did you, were you, did you really care about knowing all nine types? 
You know, to some extent early on, I didn't, I think, but later I, I, I did once I sort of started to learn more about the one and, and feel that scary sense of like, why is it peering in, you know, uh, into my life in these ways? Like right. I shouldn't right. know these things because nobody knows these things like mm-hmm. that scary feeling. I've never had that about reading about any of the other types. And so I, I spent the time to actually look into it, just to go, what are these other types and what do they do and what do they mean? And, right. and feeling totally sort of distant from even understanding what those things would mean. Cause I don't feel any of those things. I, I suppose back on your other point on the harsh critic um, here's, here's, here's how I can, I can, I, I can't see the critic in, in some sense. And maybe that's the critic in me unable to identify that, but I can see the effect of it in that um, uh, I like this vi- this distant thing where it's like, sometimes I have a hard time taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably draws back to this idea of being hard on myself, you know, but I, I think of the, if I get to anywhere, it's all, I only get as far as like, oh, I should take care of myself more. Like I should, mm. I should buy socks more often. Right. Like I should take more breaks, like that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. as opposed to all the way back to going like, what's making me not take care of myself. Like what's that voice that says you have to go harder today to do more. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say you have a lot of four qualities. You have a lot of one qualities. You have a lot of three qualities and you have a lot of seven qualities, mm-hmm. all, all four of those types. And there, there may be a very good reason for that, right? Uh, three of those types are tied together by arrows on the Enneagram. Uh, and, and, you know, so here's what, maybe one thing I'd say to you. you. You have a lot of one qualities, but other types have a lot of one-ish qualities too. I have a very, mm. strong, I have a very strong inner critic. I'm a four. Uh, threes can get confused with ones um, because threes have um, high sets of internal standards. You know, they have goals. They want to get stuff done. They, you know what I mean? They, they are uh, very concerned with excellence, you know, mm. like, and, and so again, you have a lot of these qualities of other types. It's not as, you know, some people it's like, I nail it. It's so clear to me. They are that type. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as I listen to you, you make me curious. Um, hmm. not, not to be clear, not, um, I, I never tell somebody their type. I, I, but I may say to them, you know, I would go back and read all nine types hmm. and I would pay attention particularly to threes, fours and sevens, like hmm. in your case that mm-hmm. said, there is a subtype of ones that is a little bit more like you and, and you haven't it doesn't sound like you've had an opportunity yet to dive into subtypes, but there's three different versions of the one, mm. three different versions of the four, of the seven, of the five, of the six, and they are nuanced differences. Okay. And there is a one that is less concerned with perfecting themselves than they are with perfecting others in the world. Mm. Uh, they're not, their inner critic tends to be more outwardly focused than inwardly directed. Mm. Right. So anyway, I may actually have you back on if you choose to do a big deep dive yeah. right, into all nine types and read all nine types, right? Like jump into my book would be a good, would be a good place. Uh, and then maybe I'd, if you would contact me and say, I've changed my mind. And if you mm. change your mind, I'm having you back on. <laughs> Cause that's uh, my favorite told you so moment. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, well man, 
I'm, I, I want to look into it in as much as hearing you say, you know, I'm not so sure that makes me want to go. I want to know. I want to know if I'm right at the very least. Um, uh, and so that would be look. important to you. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. No. Uh, you know, um, cause I already think I'm right. So I'm like, well, I got to go prove I'm right. So I just got to go, you know, read up on it. Right. <laughs> well, you know, just don't use that confirmation bias as you read, you know, and, and, and uh, man, I've loved this conversation. Um, and I've loved the opportunity to hear what you've spoken about and just to circle back and make it clear. I, I think that both circle media and, um, the new book publishing company that you have going have very one-ish qualities. I will say yeah. that um, they, there's a lot of wanting to improve the world, making the yeah. world more controlled and ordered, um, wanting to make the world a better place, wanting to be is a teaching component to both of them. Uh, and ones love to teach. They just love to teach. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a quality to them that is um, about how the world should be in my yeah. mind. Yeah. about how the world should be in my mind. And um, I think that's fantastic. When it's used well, it really blesses the world. You know, it really blesses yeah. the world. Um, how can people learn more about what you're doing? Oh, that's easy. Um, you know, you can find what I'm up to with the book publishing company at a kid's book um, and then at a kid's book about on Twitter, Instagram, you know, you name it. Um, I love getting emails from people. So Jelani at a kid's I take cold pitches on books, um, love ideas for new products that we should do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, that's where to find me, man. Well, listen, thank you so, so much for coming on. And I do, again, I want to say, I don't know what your type is. I never know what anybody's type is. That's up to them to figure out, you know, and share. Um, but let's circle back to each other. Let's circle yeah. back to each other. Uh, <laughs> because it may also be an opportunity for us to talk about three subtypes of ones, right? Yeah. Because you yeah. Know, not all are created the same. All right. And listen, typology friends, Anthony. Ian. Be yourself, buddy. Everybody, Everybody else. else is already taken. <laughs>